So we're on uh, key doctrines of the Christian gospel and we're on uh, lesson number two, which is sin and the promise of salvation. I want to uh, start really by uh, delivering the punchline. Um, I have six key messages that I'd like us to share together. Um, some of them will take a little bit more time than others. Some of them uh, really speak for themselves. But I'll, I'll give you the, the key messages first, and then we'll go through them one by one. So sin. We make no apology for the topic. It's the elephant in the room that needs to be exposed. Its existence, that's sin's existence, not the elephant. Sin's existence is a fact that must be accepted. And its effects and consequences must be faced. Message number one. Number two. Sin these days seems to be disguised, only properly to be exposed and illuminated in the light of the holiness of God. The doctrine of original sin, or put another way, I'm not a sinner because I sin, I sin because I'm a sinner. We'll explore that in a little more detail. That's the doctrine of original sin, and deep down, I know that to be true embedded in my heart number four sin spoils everything a damaged temporary planet suffering people and death but more than that because of sin we have become objects of wrath every human being helpless and therefore hopeless and i feel there's a, a tension uh, building in in this topic today uh, because it is so serious and it is an elephant in the room that needs to be talked about. But the tension is to also uh, mention at least the goodness of God. That's so important to see part of uh, the goodness of God in our, in our lesson. And it alludes to the second half of the title, The Promise of Salvation, which will be uh, our occupation for the next several weeks. Number six, the scene is set for a God who is perfect in holiness, perfect in love, perfect in wisdom, to personally intervene and rescue us from sin and all its consequences, restoring the relationship our great creator intended to have with his creatures that he made in his own image. A relationship that can be enjoyed now and will continue in the glory of heaven for all eternity. Let's go to our first key message, and we will just um, talk through them one by one. Sin, we, are make, we make no apology for the topic. It's the elephant in the room that needs to be exposed. Its existence is a fact which must be accepted, and its effects and consequences must be faced. The Christian gospel, of course, is a message of good news, but that good news really makes no sense unless it's understood in the context of its purpose. A gracious, loving and holy God dealing with a problem that has marred what was once his perfect creation, the problem of sin and its consequences. Paul in his letter to the Romans spends the best part of the first three chapters majoring on the topic of sin. And I'd like to um, take, take part of those three chapters for our reading together. 
Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 26. And we have to bear in mind that Paul is a Jew, although a Roman citizen, and he's addressing for the most part Gentile, and by that I mean non-Jewish Romans. What shall we conclude then, he says? Are we, that's Jews, any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one understand, who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have to be, together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his, that's God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This night righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's a, a really key um, passage of scripture. In fact, the whole of Romans is when, when we come to this, and you'll see that we'll be uh, dipping in and out of Romans in our discussion. But we have to say at the outset that we have to confront sin in all of its ugliness and uh, understand its significance, understand the consequences of sin. And that is the key for us to understand the salvation and the, the, the Christian uh, gospel that we're studying together. Incidentally, um, there is an accompanying set of notes. Hopefully you've all got those. David's uh, circulated a, a PDF. And I noticed actually that this section, that the, that it's quite an old document, I think, and it, it's written by a variety of different contributors. And this chapter two is written by Jack Ferguson. It's the guy that, um, um, name escapes me, John with the braces, who we've been enjoying his ministry, um, John Kerr. It's the guy who he's referred to a few times as his Bible teacher. So I just encourage you to, to read that um, booklet because it, it's a great complement to our study and to notice that it was Jack Ferguson that uh, writes this, this particular chapter. And there is a section which I found quite interesting and we just don't have time to, to go into it tonight, but it's a, sec a section on the origin of sin. 
it's a topic that we don't hear very much about and actually don't read very much about. I just uh, leave that one hanging and encourage us to, to go there in our own time. Key message number two, sin is mostly in disguise these days, only to be properly exposed and illuminated by the light of the holiness of God. It really is not a trendy topic, sin. <laughs> um, it's probably considered most by most to be an old fashioned religious word that's way out of date. Um, I came across an interesting quotation from this guy, uh, Carl Menninger. He's, he's a Christian American psychiatrist. And here's a comment. He says, people don't seem to sin anymore. Many former sins have become crimes so that responsibility for dealing with them has passed from the church to state, from priest to policeman, while others have dissipated into sickness, or at least into symptoms of sickness, so that in their case, punishment has been replaced by treatment. A third convenient device has been invented called collective irresponsibility, which has enabled the transfer of blame for some of our deviant behaviors uh, from ourselves as individuals to society as a whole or to one of its many groups. It seems that sin is really out of date for the most part of man's thinking. And um, these inventions are made to try and, I don't know, divert our attention away from the individual and come up with some other explanation as to why we do what we do. It reminds me of a, a, a situation I found myself in many years ago, probably about 30 years ago. I just joined Emerson and I was on a training course and it was uh, three or four of us on a, um, a stay away course, which meant we had each other's company each evening. And it developed into an opportunity for me to witness to a couple of colleagues and of course I did my best to courageously share my testimony and at the end one of my colleagues said Steve I do the things every day that your bible labels as sin but I don't feel guilty for them if I lie or steal or harm or kill then that's a different story but I don't do those things I still know the guy um, and I know that he, he lives a very ordinary life and not a Christian life. But at the time, he was just uh, left unaffected by the idea of sin in his life needing to be dealt with. You know, it begs a definition of sin. And uh, apparently there are three or four different Hebrew words for sin used in the scriptures and maybe four or five Greek words in the New Testament used for sin. But the most common one that's used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament carries the idea of missing the mark. And that's really helpful because it introduces into the subject some kind of reference, some kind of standard. And you know, compared to me or some other person, you may be good and my colleague may have been good. But before God, which is the only standard that's involved here, then we all miss the mark. With this definition, perhaps if I'd had that definition up my sleeve at the time, it would have steered the conversation in a, a more productive direction. 
But with that definition, missing the holy standard of God, then show me someone who honestly, with all of their hearts, would declare themselves to be guiltless. We will touch on that a little later. Should I feel somehow a failure because that witness opportunity never really um, became productive as far as I know, and it's not over yet? I don't think so, because we need to recognize the role of the Holy Spirit in this idea of making us sensitive to sin. We go to John 16, which very familiar passage. We've been there very recently. And it's the time when the Lord Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples and was explaining to them how the Holy Spirit would come and what he would do. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I think a really important lesson for us uh, in considering this important aspect of sin and our sensitivity to sin and perhaps those who were burdened for their salvation, their sensitivity to sin. An important aspect is to recognize that it's the Holy Spirit, it's the work of God in an individual's heart that creates an awareness of sin and we're just you know a vehicle which the holy spirit can work through uh, we're in partnership with him witnessing and it really brings to my heart a challenge I, I do have a list of people who as far as i'm aware they're not saved and i'm burdened for them and i pray for them every day and it helps me to this thought helps me to perhaps bring a bit of intelligence to that prayer that the Holy Spirit will work in their hearts and create circumstances which will give them a sensitivity to sin. Key message number three, I share that with you as a challenge also, of course. Key message number three, the doctrine of original sin, and uh, in a nutshell here, and this is a little bit of a tongue twister and uh, just reflect on it. I'm not a sinner because I sin, I sin, because I'm inherently a sinner. I was born a sinner. And because I was born a sinner, I can't help but sin. That's the point. And deep down, I know that. The doctrine of original sin was really um, first articulated from scripture in the fifth century by a guy called Saint Augustine. And he came up with a phrase, something along the lines that, on the lines that human beings are incapable of not sinning it's just an, an inevitable consequence and it's a consequence of the first sin of adam and eve at the beginning of creation and since then sin has been transmitted from one generation to the next without exception this is a, a key scriptural principle it's not something that saint augustine invented he may have um, given it a, a name, but it's something that's embedded throughout scripture 
in many places. The, the principle of um, original sin and how it's transmitted from one generation to another, that in itself is perhaps a mystery. Maybe we don't understand that, but it's a fact that we need to accept. Romans 5 and 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and in the same way, death came to all men because all men have sinned. It's also borne out by the facts, the fact of history, um, exposed to all its truth. Um, it, it, this, this truth is, is exposed in all of history, and the only um, person that would prove it to be the case is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who, the only one who lived an exemplary life and who um, didn't miss the mark, but hit the mark every time. The whole of history demonstrates that all of mankind, since the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, um, has this sin problem. However, society might attempt to disguise sin or even dress it up as something that should be celebrated. You know, that's something that, that burdens me a lot. <laughs> and I do probably spend too much time watching the telly, but um, often you're into a, a program and really enjoying it. It's a, it's a great way of relaxing and it's good entertainment and very high quality production and all of that stuff. But, you know, sometimes it's either blatant or sometimes it's subliminal that what we're watching is a celebration of sin. And that really speaks to my heart as to, you know, do I test the things that I allow my eyes to see and my ears to hear uh, with regard to um, their purpose? The world has so twisted society's view of sin that is it has become something to celebrate. But one of the things that the scriptures teach is that in every human being, being made in the image of God, that, that's the thing that uh, makes us distinct from every other aspect or, or element of God's creation, we're made in his image. And because of that, we have a, an inbuilt sin monitor. It's also referred to in modern um, parlance as a moral compass. And it's called our conscience. Back to Paul's thesis on sin and the law, law and grace in Romans. And in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they showed that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Paul was saying that even those who were Gentiles and didn't have the Old Testament law were not given a special sensitivity to God's law. They had uh, written on their hearts uh, a sensitivity to sin, a sense of what is right and what is wrong. Going back to my colleague, you know, he was perhaps... Um, setting the bar pretty low in his own mind um, but when pressed he would I'm sure well he did recognize that there were certain things 
that he felt he didn't do, but they would have been wrong had he done them. So we're given this um, sin um, monitor in our makeup and it's our moral compass and it's called our conscience. Despite living at times and in a culture where society would make sure I'm kind of anesthetized to sin, it does not detract from the reality that whatever I may feel, I am before God by nature and by birth, a sinner. Coming to our lesson number four, key message number four, sin spoils everything. A damaged temporary planet, suffering people and death, but more than that, because of sin, we have become objects of wrath, every human being helpless and therefore hopeless. Now, those three things, the damaged temporary planet, the planet is deteriorating. <laughs> and um, actually, that goes against evolution, I think, or the principle of evolution is that by over time, things get better. Never actually heard anyone talk about that, but it seems like uh, the planet isn't getting better. It's deteriorating. Um, people suffering. Now, that um, really difficult question everybody asks. Uh, why do people, why do good people, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do people suffer and ultimately die? I'm not sure if it's occurred to us before, but I think the Christian gospel is the only kind of religious faith that brings any explanation for this. It's quite perverse, isn't it? That people in our society, they would jump to the conclusion that God is to blame for things that go wrong but the good things that they appreciate every day and overlook are seen as a an accident or a matter of chance certainly not a consequence of god's goodness it's an odd thing because they deny the goodness of god and they also jump to the conclusion that god is to blame for all the bad that goes on but in the process they also deny that he even exists it's a whole mixture of contradictions. But I, I wanted to really major on this comment, objects of wrath. It's one thing to say that uh, we live in a damaged world. And that's really important to understand. You know, people do suffer. Earthquakes happen and, and accidents happen. Natural disasters happen because we're living in a damaged world and the world is damaged by sin. Sometimes we limit sin just to people, but it's the whole of creation that is damaged. We get that from Romans chapter eight. But here's an interesting verse, and I wanted us to uh, focus for a little while on this statement, objects of wrath. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. No, being without hope and without God uh, is is one thing being dead in in transgressions and sins you know they these speak to the statement in our key message that that people in that situation are helpless and hopeless but it's worse than that 
we're not just helpless and hopeless and struggling as a consequence of sin. Because of God's holiness and his perfection, which demands that sin can't be overlooked, to consider God's holiness without considering his requirement for justice makes his holiness meaningless. So if we're considering God's holiness, we need to consider his requirements for justice and his requirements for justice demand that sin is dealt with. And because we are sinners, then we are objects of his wrath. I could say, and of just think about that statement, objects of the wrath of God. By nature, because of sin, we deserve all of the wrath of God to be poured out upon us. I wish I understood that. It's a, it's a dreadful thing to think about. But if I understood the reality of being by nature an object of God's wrath, it would stir my soul to pray more earnestly, I think, for those that I love who don't know the Lord, because they're in a position of being objects of his wrath. I said there's a, a tension in the whole subject and we have to balance the, the righteousness and the holiness of God with his love and his goodness. And I say balance, I don't mean that these are variable things and they find a kind of balance. The balance is in their perfection. So God is perfectly holy. God is perfectly righteous. He's perfect in love and he's perfect in wisdom and he's perfect in goodness. And how do I know that? Well, I know it because of my own experience of it as much as anything else. And I would just encourage us to, as we're reflecting in our study of sin, it will come up again, I'm sure, that the tension there requires us to reflect also on the goodness of God. You could pick many scriptures, but here's a few verses from Psalm 145, which is um, a Psalm of David. And he's someone who knew about sin. Read Psalm 51. There's many other Psalms he wrote where he's pouring out his heart to God because of sin. In Psalm 51, he, he has a real sense that whatever harm his actions had done to other people, which was very significant, he said it was against God. You only have I sinned. He had the right perspective on the uh, importance of sin, the significance of sin in his life as far as God was concerned. But this is what David, in his tension in his life about knowing about sin and its significance, but knowing about the goodness of God, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and exalt your, extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. In considering sin, its significance and its consequences, 
in embracing the elephant in the room and being prepared to um, confront these things, we do so at this in this day of grace alongside the goodness of God. Let's move to our final key message. Hopefully what, where we've got to with last week's ministry from David and, and what we've considered today, the scene is set for a God who is perfect in holiness, perfect in love, perfect in wisdom, to, uh, and we're setting the scene that he's uh, ready to personally intervene and rescue us from sin and all its consequences. Restoring the relationship our great creator intended to have with the creatures he made in his own image. A relationship that can be enjoyed now and will continue in the glory of heaven for all eternity. Looking at my Zoom screen and seeing all your lovely faces, it's pretty clear that everyone knows what comes next. We've set the scene and we so appreciate the truths of the gospel that we'll be discussing but I just wanted to conclude really by going back to our, the, where we started in Romans chapter three. Uh, in that chapter, Paul paints the picture, the sin, and then he moves into the promise of salvation. Verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the time present, at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I don't know if, like me, you've been stopped in your tracks by the statement that we are by nature objects of wrath. Romans 3 and 21 onwards, as we've read, describes the situation where the Lord Jesus Christ was presented by God to become the object of his wrath so that we might know God's righteousness. You know, we've been uh, translated from being objects of wrath to uh, sons and daughters of glory in Christ. What a great subject we have. And I just look forward to learning more about it in our uh, coming weeks. Thank you.